You are listening to Serve, Protect, Lead, a podcast from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where you will hear from ICP leadership and police leaders across the globe, sharing wisdom, insight, and perspective. Hello, everyone. My name is Christina Fernandez, and I am a program manager at the ICP. This is our second podcast on the topic of the IACP's Mass Violence Advisory Initiative, a program that provides police leaders with peer-to-peer assistance as they navigate the unique complexities and challenges of a mass violence incident. Our focus today will be on communication strategies during and in the aftermath of one of these tragedies. I am honored to be joined today by Orange County Sheriff John Mina and Michelle Guido, Director of Strategic Communications of the Orange County Sheriff's Office. Welcome, Sheriff Mina and Michelle. Thank you for your time and your willingness to share your experiences, perspectives, and lessons learned. So let's dive in. I'd like each of you to just take a moment to introduce yourselves and tell us what brought you here today. Um, Sheriff Mina, why don't we start with you? Sure. I'm Sheriff John Mina. Um, And six years ago, unfortunately, I was the police chief uh, at the Orlando Police Department, and we had the uh, mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub. Uh, and now I am the, the sheriff in Orange County and also part of the, uh, the Mass Violence Advisory Initiative. And I'm Michelle Guido. I um, have been working with Sheriff Mina since he was Chief Mina at the Orlando Police Department. I started there as a civilian public information officer in 2015 after I left a career in news after 27 years in the news business at newspapers primarily and then one year in television news and became the Orlando Police Department's uh, first civilian PIO, which Sheriff Mina hired me into that job. And when he was elected sheriff, he asked me to come along and I was really happy to do that. We're going to delve a little bit more into the relationship that you two have and how long you've been working together. Thank you for that that background. Um, We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I think um, if we could start with just a little bit more background on what happened during the incident. I think most people are probably familiar with the pulse attack, but don't really have an understanding of it from your perspective and what law enforcement went through at that time. Uh, If you could talk a little bit about that experience and what that was what that was like from law enforcement and from the public information officers perspective and sheriff why don't we start with you as well yeah so uh, june 12th um, 2016 six years ago uh, at 2 a.m a lone gunman entered uh, the pulse nightclubs predominantly lgbtq nightclub and he just began uh, shooting uh, people in the nightclub uh, there was a an off-duty officer who was um, outside the scene um, who did exchange gunfire with the suspect. Uh, It quickly turned into a hostage situation. Um, Hundreds of officers and deputies uh, throughout Central Florida responded. Uh, Deputies and officers made entry into the nightclub within minutes of the shooting, uh, which forced the, the suspect into one of the rear bathrooms and really caused a a hostage situation. Uh, We did communicate with the suspect and claimed to be uh, from Al-Qaeda and also claimed to have uh, many explosives, uh, which made our our decision-making and our our strategy even that much more difficult uh, because he he planned, uh, he said he had planned to to blow up 
um, the nightclub and, and several blocks. And um, as a matter of fact, a, a canine uh, who's trained in explosives actually had a positive indication for explosives on the suspect's car right outside the nightclub. So uh, it was an incident that turned, started as an active shooter, turned into a hostage situation and turned into a hostage situation who was barricaded, uh, but also threatening to use uh, multiple explosives. Um, so uh, at about 5 a.m. in the morning, we made uh, the decision to uh, breach the outer walls in the nightclub uh, and save dozens and dozens of hostages and kill the suspect. Michelle, as all of this was unfolding for Sheriff Mina and his officers, what was happening from the PIO side of things? So the shooting at the nightclub started at 2.02 in the morning. And as a PIO, we received our first notification notification of that from the comm center at about 3.15 a.m. So we have always said in retrospect that that notification should have come quicker so that we could get to the scene uh, more quickly. But for a variety of reasons, it happened the way that it did, primarily because the folks who would have been making those notifications were engaged in that operation and unable to do that. So we arrived on the scene and immediately just thought about what is it that we just need to do right now. And the first thing that we did was post um, an update on Twitter that basically all it said was that there was police activity at the Pulse nightclub and asking people to please stay away. And then shortly after that, we posted a couple of extra things which said, we know that you're looking for information. This is the only official place to get information would have been from our Orlando Police Department, Twitter feed. And, um, and then we just started updating with whatever information we could leading up to the first press conference, which happened a little bit after seven in the morning. We're gonna, I think, talk a little bit more about kind of the the order of events, the chain of events, things that, that you learn from the experience. But before we go into that, I would like to talk a little bit about your working relationship, how, how you've built this relationship of trust between Sheriff Mina and Michelle, you're, you're as command staff and as the PIO, and, and how can other agencies sort of model that kind of, that kind of relationship of trust and, and collaboration? Sheriff Mina, why don't you start? Sure, so uh, obviously we've been working together now for, um, uh, over six years, almost seven years. And I think uh, one of the most important parts about uh, that relationship and why it's so strong is because we communicate all the time. Um, so in, in both instances, uh, as chief and now as sheriff, uh, she has instant access to, to me. She doesn't have to go through someone else to get to me. Um, she's part of all of our, our critical meetings. Anytime there is a a crisis anytime there are um, things that involve the public or or a lot of the other decisions i make sure that michelle is including that uh, to make sure that you know we're, we're being transparent we're, we're covering all the angles and, and and that just has continued to build the trust between the two of us michelle why is it so important to build this kind of relationship between the pio and chief or sheriff 
Well, I mean, I have to say, I, I'm really grateful to Sheriff Mina because I feel like uh, from the moment that I joined OPD, we kind of started from a place of trust and kind of gave each other the benefit of the doubt and decided that we were really going to trust each other and move forward that way. And so we were, we really started off on the right foot and it didn't take us long to establish that kind of trust. Um, but the reason that it's so important is it's important on a number of fronts. One is if you are sort of the gatekeeper to information for your agency, you want to make sure that the information that you're releasing is in line with your leaders philosophy and how the way that they look at the world right and so you really have to kind of know someone in order to effectively communicate messages from the agency that they are in charge of and so um you know getting to know at that point the chief and now the sheriff i understand the things that are important to him and so when we are when we begin anything that we do in terms of releasing information i know that the, the basic tenets of his leadership are trust accountability transparency and those are the most important things and so we look at everything through that lens and all of the initiatives that we do all of the um, communications strategies that we have, they all come from a place of how do we get this um, information out to the community um, and what, how do we craft these messages so that they understand that it's important, that it's important to us that they know as much as possible, as quickly as possible, particularly in critical incidents. Sheriff Mina, is there anything that you would add to that? Like what, what advice would you give to agencies that are working to kind of build this relationship? Are there any obstacles or any considerations that they need to be thinking about and how do they best work through that? Yeah, from the very beginning, that person, that strategic communications person or public information officer, um, they have to be included on you know, even high level meetings and they have to know what's going on in the agency. Um, you know, and so the, the relationship between me and Michelle, so she really knows, um, and she mentioned this, what, what my philosophy is and what my thoughts are uh, about law enforcement, about building trust in the community, about engaging with the community. So when we, when we um, come up with talking points together, she already has that um, background and that outline um, for me. And uh, so it's, it's an easy transition and it works really good, but yeah, just um, having them in on those high level decisions. So they, so she had, she had the benefit of hearing me talk to all of my different, you know, staff members and commanders saying, no, th this is how I want this done. This is, are the decisions, how this is what I want the end result to be. So by, even though she may have not been uh, a part of the decision-making at that, for that particular incident, she's hearing um, what my thoughts are, what my philosophies are, or, you know, she repeated, it's the same things uh, a lot of the times. And, and that helps her get a good understanding of, you know, what, what I need as the leader. I think I think that the trust between you is so so clear and comes through so strongly and I know that that's not always an easy thing to build and it, it takes openness and transparency on, on both sides so um, I think that's really really important to note um, and I think as we talk about the events at Pulse it's going to become so much clearer why that was so critical so turning our, our attention to the events at the Pulse nightclub 
Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how you both approached it from the communication perspective. Michelle, you talked a bit about how you found out and how, how that kind of moved from there. What were the first few things that you had to focus on immediately? Like if you were to, to list the top five things that needed to be handled quickly and efficiently, what would those have been? So I think um, the first thing was really establishing that our agency's Twitter feed was the only place to get credible, reliable information. And part of that included, um, you know, when something like this happens, a critical incident like this, you do get a lot of, um, you get a lot of requests from your colleagues at other agencies. How can we help you? Is there something that we can do? And we did get a lot of those calls that morning from other law enforcement PIOs. And what we told them was you could really help us if you could direct everyone to us. So in other words, don't answer any questions, don't send any emails, don't say anything about this incident and instead send everyone to our Twitter feed. So that was a way to reinforce that we were a united front and the only people that were gonna give out information were going to be through our Twitter feed or through our live press events that started happening throughout the day. Um, another thing that I thought was really important and this um, went a long way for us as PIOs, we decided very early on, we were getting so many phone calls and emails. We had uh, more than 1100 email requests in our inbox by 10 o'clock that morning. So, and about 500 of them came before 5 a.m. So um, we decided that we were just going to absolutely ignore those. So we created an out of office email message. And what it said was, we know you want information. We're working as hard as we can to get that information for you. Please help us help you by going to our Twitter feed, getting the information from there and listening to our, um, to our live press conferences because that really took the pressure off of us. There is no way that you can respond uh, individually in a situation like that. So being able to release ourselves from that pressure and understanding that we weren't, and we did the same with our office out of office message on the phone and also on our cell phones. Um, so that really helped a lot because it just made it impossible for, it made it possible for us to do our job. Every time I hear you talk about that, it just astonishes me that you received that Kind of influx of communication and just your approach makes makes perfect sense you can't you can't respond to it all you can't you have to just sort of put something to the side and focus on what you can focus on sheriff mina how did you how did you delegate tasks and ensure that that everything was being handled and what are the things that you relied on michelle and her team to to take care of well so as far as uh me as the chief uh, we relied on you know incident command um, system, ICS, and, uh, you know, having all those other different agencies. Uh, so my, my deputy chiefs and my senior staff were, uh, were given tasks uh, that we needed to do right away. And, then, you know, as far as investigations and scene security and, and liaisoning with uh, the other agencies that were involved. So as far as uh, communications, you know, it was important that uh, I, 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 I was, going through it, but I wasn't there at the very, very beginning when the first shot was fired, obviously. So for me, it was learning everything that happened, exactly what we did as much as we could, and then being able to 
um, share that with Michelle and our other PIOs and kind of you know formulate, this is what we want to tell the community. We want to tell the community what happened um, and what was our response. And, and, and most importantly, that the incident was over and that everyone is safe right now. In the aftermath of, of one of these tragedies, there's so many other organizations, law enforcement agencies, other stakeholders that get involved or want to get involved, want to know what's happening. How do you manage communicating with all of those different entities? And how do you how do you prioritize that when there's so much else that you need to, to focus on? But there's people that need to be apprised of what's happening and, and have have a, a vested interest. I would say that is a, a definite challenge for law enforcement leaders who are going through. There's so much information. Uh, there's so much to do. There are so many different entities and agencies that are involved, and you just have to, you know, assign people. Okay, you're going to handle um, uh, liaisoning with uh, city government, and you'll handle uh, the the investigation. And you'll handle the um, uh, victims and survivors and families and a multitude of other tasks. And, and as you can imagine, um, throughout the, the following days, uh, these tasks, these, these asks uh, continue to come in. And just a, a real quick example on the, on the smallest, smallest level, you know, as Michelle said, all these people, they just want to reach out and they want to help. And, you know, I'm getting a phone call from my mom saying that if she works at Lowe's and she has a pallet of water to deliver. I'm like, mom, I'm the chief. I, <laughs> here, and so I, Captain DeShriver, please call my mom and tell her where to bring this pallet of water. So, but those requests, hundreds and hundreds of requests like that, come in uh, from the very smallest request to a uh, very large request from the from the community. Michelle, I'm going to ask you the same question, having having all these different organizations and entities and, and other law enforcement agencies involved. How did you balance providing them with updates, giving them information? And how did you approach that? So the most actually, in some ways, this um, worked really well intuitively this whole process in terms of the press conferences and things like that we were we physically knew that we had to do them at or near the scene so that was fairly easy to set up we gave people direction on where to be and what time and then we um and then we held the the media you know availabilities and and did all of that which were carried worldwide live and there were some you know lessons that we learned in that process um, um, because there were people who kind of went up to the microphone before the press conferences even started who had nothing to do with the, with our situation they weren't speakers so you know we learned a little bit about like keeping an eye on the microphone making sure that we had an officer kind of standing by to ensure that that wouldn't happen and i think some of the best lessons that we learned were were things that we learned in retrospect where we didn't have five minutes to catch our breath during that period i would say of certainly 72 hours and a lot of stuff like the first 10 days. Um, but one of the things that I'd like to tell people about one of the things that we learned when people ask you for help, or if you're in this situation where a critical incident is happening and you wanna reach out and ask for help, asking how you can help is not helpful. But what is helpful is being able to say, here's what I can do for you. Would any of these things be helpful? 
And some of the things that I realized that we didn't have in the first hours, you know, I'm a recently transitioned journalist with 27 years of journalism experience. I took like four photographs between 2 a.m. and 7 a.m. I should have been either delegating that to someone else, asking them to take, you know, scene photos, just the, the, the things that that journalists on site, frankly, were getting. We didn't have any of those. We didn't have anything that was our own thing that we could use later. Um, we were standing on the street using only our cell phones for all communication, so we had no access to a television. We couldn't watch the television coverage of this unfolding. So it wasn't until about five in the morning that I got a call from a PIO asking how they could help. And I said, can you watch the news? Can you just watch the news and every 30 minutes, send me a text and let me know, are there narratives out there that are wrong that we need to correct? Is there something happening out there that we can help clarify? You know, just So that was very helpful. So moving forward, when there were critical incidents, I kind of knew how to reach out to my counterparts at other agencies and say, Here's what I, I can monitor social media for you and make sure that there isn't um, a bunch of erroneous sort of tweets out there in the world. I can watch television and let you know how the television um, news coverage is going. Those kind of things are very, very helpful and they're not things that you think about in the moment. That's really critical, critical insight. We've talked a lot about sort of the initial incident and the initial aftermath, but the effect of these incidents is ongoing for many, many weeks, if not months, if not years. Um, Sheriff Mina, what what were the shifts in priorities as time started to, to pass and things sort of started to settle down a little bit? What did your focus have to kind of turn to and what were the things that came up that were not present during the initial incident but became very important in the following days, weeks, months? Well, there were a number of things. Um, one was a, a lot of um, disinformation about what had actually happened. You know, the the suspect was dead. Uh, so automatically with all these people dead, you know, the focus is going to be on what was the law enforcement response? Was it correct? And there's a lot of, you know, as Michelle said, erroneous information getting out there. One of the things that I thought uh, was brilliant that was Michelle did, you talked about the pictures, you know, one of our um, officers were shot in the head and luckily the Kevlar helmet uh, had stopped the round uh, from killing him so we tweeted out a photo of that helmet you know to, just to kind of show the, the people that hey wait a minute you know these officers uh, risk their lives and I, I did after that photo went out I did see a shift in, in kind of public opinion about, wait a minute, you know, these guys were there right away. They went in, you know, uh, one of the, one of the officers was shot during the hostage rescue. Uh, and then, you know, for me, uh, moving forward, uh, was, you know, how do we, how do we communicate? We're doing all this communication to our, uh, to our community, but also the needs of the internal communication. There are needs that need to be met internally. So we put out messaging to our, our department about what had happened and what we're going to do moving forward. Uh, there was also uh, the, the mental health um, needs that our responding officers and dispatchers and, and everyone had at the time. Uh, so there's a multitude of things that we we're going, you know, we're still dealing with uh, almost an entire block uh, being shut down for nearly a week. So there's communication to uh, the business owners who are getting, you know, uh, 
a little antsy about you know their their livelihood uh, being shut down because they were in the middle of a crime scene. So all those things were going on, and um, you know again we it was we just had the triage every single thing. There were still um, survivors and people who had been at the club who had cars um, that were inside the crime scene that you know they needed cars to go to work uh, so there are a lot of different things that we're dealing with and i i tell you know chiefs and sheriffs all the time i was like you know once the incident is over that that's actually when the heavy lifting begins because all this information starts to come in all these requests all these asks and of course you know all the all the information the the public and the media need to know um, about the incident. Michelle, I'm going to ask you the same question. How did your role sort of shift and change as we moved a little bit further from the actual incident? So interestingly, you know, the uh, city of Orlando has its own team of communication experts. They did an amazing job with like the reunification centers and all of the things that happened, the funds that started, the resources, all of that for the survivors and the community. And because of that, we were able to still stay focused on the law enforcement part, which was really my lane. And um, as part of that, we started over time in the days following the incident to um, start putting up our own people for interviews. Obviously, everybody wants a first person account of what happened. And we understand that. Um, and so we did go and, and find some of the first first responders. Um, one of the iconic images, aside from that helmet, still photograph one of the iconic images from Pulse that I will never forget is the news coverage that showed um, officers on scene lifting victims into the back of pickup trucks and transporting them to the hospital, which was less than a half a mile away, literally on the same street, um, but piling people up into these pickup trucks and driving them to the hospital. And so we, we um, were able to identify a group of those officers and were able to set up uh, media availability with them so that they could tell their um, story from that perspective. And we did that with a lot of different, um, a lot of different folks over that next period of time. And what was most difficult was obviously the, the officers and deputies on scene who were involved in the shooting incident at the end, none of them could talk. And those were the people that people wanted to hear from most. And I feel like this is a, one of the lessons that we learned in Florida. We have very, very, um, you know, liberal public records laws. And our process was that we would generally within 24 hours of any kind of officer involved shooting, we would release the names of the officers involved. And we did that during Pulse, not taking into consideration the fact that it was not just our local media that was there, but national and international media. And what happened in the aftermath of that was horrifying. And our officers were very upset. People were coming to their homes, um, calling their parents and their children on cell phones, you know, and, and that was all very upsetting. And so I think that we, we determined afterwards that we just weren't gonna, we wouldn't do that the same way anymore. Um, just to protect those officers and deputies from that onslaught that came and we hadn't even considered what might happen if their names were out there. So that was one of the things. And then when the um, sheriff was talking about internal communications, I just want to say that one of my 
one of the things that I also remember most vividly and that I think was amazing was that after about 18 hours into this, um, we had a chance to talk. I don't even know if he remembers this, but he said, you know, I, I really want to send a, I feel like I need to send a message to internally to all of our officers. And he just sat down in this little tent that we were working out of and scratched something out um, just to like express his own, um, you know, gratefulness to all of the actions that everybody had done that day. And I really feel like that was, um, you know, I'm not sure that everybody would think of doing that at the end of a 20 hour day. That was a day like that, but it was something that he thought of and I felt like it was remarkable. And I know that people really, um, that heartfelt message meant a lot to the troops. And it says a lot about the kind of person and leader that he is for sure. Michelle, you talked a little bit about officers or first responders kind of having to, to get in front of the camera sometimes when that's maybe not something that they're accustomed to, especially during something like this. How do you, do you have any suggestions or tips for how to prepare them for that? How to kind of make them comfortable and ensure that they have the tools in the toolbox to be able to do that comfortably? So this is kind of a pedestrian way of explaining it, but when, um, you know, cop speak is a real thing and it doesn't always translate into the language of normal people. So I, when, when we're preparing people for things like these kinds of interviews, I always ask them to consider, I, I ask them to go over with me what they're going to say. What was the experience like? What, what happened? Here are some of the questions that you're going to get. And then I ask them to imagine that they're telling this story to a friend of theirs in a bar over a beer and they're not a cop, right? Or this is how you're going to explain it to your wife when you go home tonight. People who don't um, who don't speak that language need to be able to understand what what you went through and how you went through it. And I think that really helps them kind of kind of um, put it into perspective. Um, and so those are we don't do it. We didn't do a lot of interfering with what what their stories were or how they were going to tell them. They were all very heartfelt, and um, these men and women had you know been through it, and their their stories were amazing and. Um, heartbreaking, you know, and so we just kind of let them, but I always give them that little bit of um, advice, you know, just act like you're, tell it like you're not talking to a cop and that helps. That's great advice. Sheriff Mina, what did you learn from the experience as it relates to communication and communication strategies within the department and, and with the public and with other, other interested parties? Well, uh, one of the big things and kind of, um, you know, going off of what Michelle said, um, a lot of people have asked, well, like, why, well, you know, how were you able to, to do all that? You had, you know, local media, national media, international media, uh, and all these press conferences, but, you know, you, you really looked um, comfortable. And, and so I, I go back to when I first became chief, and um, I would do a lot of interviews um, even for, you know, things that maybe the chief, you know, wouldn't do an interview on. And I always, I always said, whether it's good or whether it's bad, I'm going to get in front of the camera, um, because I knew that, um, I wasn't the best at it. So I, I practice it really in real life. And, you know, if I, you mess up on a, on a local robbery story, you know, uh, other cops or other chiefs might laugh at you. like, Oh, he messed up on that story. But, um, I got more and more comfortable with it. So by the time this, this huge incident happened, I, I was more comfortable in front of the cameras and was able to happen. So that's one of the biggest pieces of advice on communication strategies that I give to other chiefs and sheriffs that don't let that 
be the first time that you have to get in front of a camera because it's probably not going to go um, well. And, and it's it's a very difficult um, scene to, to kind of manage if you don't have the experience of doing that. Very good advice. Um, has, has the way that your agency communicates, did, did any changes come about in terms of communication strategies or policy as a result of this incident? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say there were any major changes, um, you know, going from the Orlando Police Department to now the Orange County Sheriff's Office. Uh, we've kind of um, kept it the same. I know, you know, me and Michelle uh, were just talking about this. You know, we prefer uh, to put the experts out there. Um, you know, when the community needs to hear from the chief or sheriff, that's who the community should hear from. Or, or you know, if we had a robbery or a burglary or a child abuse case, uh, the, the, the public and the media should um, hear from those experts in those different fields. I feel like we've really kind of, for sure at the sheriff's office, um, shifted our strategy into a, you know, if something is important in this community, people hear from the sheriff. We've really shifted away from a spokesperson model and we don't really have that here. You're not going to really see that at the sheriff's office. And that's because of what the sheriff said. We have a really deep bench. We're a large agency. We have a really deep bench of experts in all of their fields. And um, in my view, it's best to put those people out there because they have the most knowledge and they're the ones who can handle those questions and inquiries best. And if we have a situation where um, something important is happening then it's always the sheriff who's out in front and that's by design because you know he's he's um he answers to the voters here and to the community and so it's important for him to be out there and that's how he wants it so what we also have learned in, in both agencies obviously there are um many officers, deputies, even some commanders and, and people rank who are, who are not comfortable in front of the camera. But there are many people um, who are very comfortable talking to people. And, and as a leader, it's, it's our job to find those people in our agencies that are, are, and it could be an officer, it could be a deputy with only a couple years on, but they're comfortable doing it. And it really can help with the communication strategy, you're hearing from some young officer or, or a young deputy about their experiences, and especially if they, they enjoy doing it and they're comfortable in front of the camera. Sort of read my mind a little because my next question was going to be about what if it's a, a smaller agency that maybe doesn't have a dedicated PIO or maybe doesn't have the infrastructure set up to, to deal with something like this, what advice I'm going to ask both of you this question. What advice would you would you give them in terms of being prepared? And like you said, maybe seeking out an officer that is kind of more comfortable in front of the camera or just has that natural speaking ability. And Sheriff Mean, I'll start with you. Yeah, and sort of like what I just say, every agency has them, no matter how small they are. And it's up to the chief or the sheriff to find that person and say, hey, look, you know, if something happens, you're, you're going to be the person that I go to. And, and another thing um, that, that we have done, and Michelle can talk more about this, she's done a really good job about this, is it is the responsibility of those larger agencies to reach out to those smaller agencies in the surrounding areas and, and say, again, this is how we can help 
you in this situation and how we can prepare you for this situation. Yep, and I also think that, you know, um, chiefs and sheriffs, even if their agencies are really small, as the leader of that agency, you need to be prepared to get out in front of your community. And that means a lot of times getting out in front of the media or making sure that your messages are um, being uh, put out there through your own social media channels or however your agency does it. And, you know, IACP, there are lots of um, good training programs that that chiefs and sheriffs can do even if it's you know an hour of training with somebody who's qualified and i think you know at the um mbai we might do some of that you know down the road as well just like making sure that people you know have that even a basic level of uh media training for critical incidents would certainly help um I know that in our situation, you know, shortly after the Pulse incident, the um, the Kissimmee Police Department, which is a smaller agency just down the road from here, they lost two of their officers were murdered in one incident. And they had one PIO and their chief was, um, you know, getting ready to address the media. I spoke with, at that point, Chief Mina, and he said to me, you know, if there's some way you can help, just help and so i said okay i'm just going to go down there and that's what we did we i met with the pio she said i'm just at my wits end i have to get the chief ready for this press conference and i said here are the things that i can do if you trust me i'll take over your social media i'll stream the press conference live for you i'll tell the media when where to come to you you know and and all of that and so um that really worked out well it worked for her and it worked um for us we were able to help and she was able to get some of the help that she needed and even in things like planning a funeral um, for fallen officer, you know, we had just been through that, I want to say six months, eight months earlier with our own Lieutenant Deborah Clayton, who was killed in the line of duty. And so we had everything that we had um, planned in terms of a media plan and all of that. And I sent it all to them and said, just change the name and you're ready to go. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel a lot of times in um, these kinds of things, especially, you know, things that happen like line of duty deaths and that kind of thing. So it's always helpful to just have a network of people whose phone numbers you have and who you know that you can call them anytime, day or night, and either ask for their help or offer up some help. So you touched on, on MVAI, and that was actually going to be a good segue into my next question for both of you. So the MVAI is comprised of subject matter experts like yourselves who have been through something like this and can provide assistance to a, to a police leader now dealing with it for the first time and, and all the intricacies and complexities that that involves. What made you each decide that you wanted to be a part of the MV, MVAI, and how do you think we can best help police leaders through something like this and in the aftermath. And um, Sheriff Mina, I'm just gonna start with you. Yeah, well, so I just go back to my own experience and I, I tell other chiefs and sheriffs, you know, it would have been nice to, to be able to reach out to a chief or a sheriff who had been through a mass shooting um, immediately or within the first three hours or the first 10 hours and say, hey, this is what happened. Um, this is what I've done so far real quickly. Um, is there anything I need to do right now today? And I'll call you, you know, let me know and I'll, I'll call you later and then probably ask you in two days, hey, this is what I've done. Uh, because I did bring in, um, you know, weeks later, uh, several chiefs 
um, before we had the MBAI, and I asked them, uh, you know, Chief um, Oates from Aurora Theater Shooting and then Chief Kehoe from Newtown, and, you know, asked them about, you know, specifically about mental health for uh, our officers and what I would need going forward. So to be able to have this advisory initiative where we can reach out or chiefs or sheriffs can reach out to us, and it could be just one question. Like, hey, Chief Mina, Sheriff Mina, you dealt with this. Um, you know, I just want to make sure I'm on the right track. Is there anything else I should be doing? Or just like Michelle said, you know, here, here are the things that I can offer. I can tell you what my experiences was, um, you know, with the, the community, with city government, with, uh, you know, the, the faith-based community. Uh, all those, you know, thousands of questions that you might have, you know, we could possibly help answer it because we unfortunately have been through a tragedy. Michelle, what are your thoughts? Why did you decide you wanted to be a part of the MVAI and how do you think that you can best help another agency dealing with something like this? Well, I think that for so many of us in these positions, it's not, you know, sadly, it feels inevitable that some kind of critical incident is gonna happen somewhere in your universe at some point. And so I think that, you know, particularly having the sort of curse and blessing of hindsight and being able to say, gosh, if I'd only known this, you know, and some of those things I've, I've talked about, like, I wish somebody was watching the television for me, something that simple, um, you know, can really help in the initial moments. And so I'm happy to, um, I think it's really important that we share what we know. And um, I'm just really honored to even have been asked to be a part of that process because I think that, you know, it can be very, very helpful, particularly for a small agency. You know, we know that a lot of, we, we, we are, we're in an enviable position here at the Orange County Sheriff's Office. We have a huge agency. We have a lot of people here in strategic communications. Um, and so we have what we need, generally speaking, and, um, and realize that a lot of places don't have that luxury. And so anything that we can do to help them, um, like the sheriff said, it might just be one phone call. You know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about only um, releasing information via Twitter? But that requires, you know, some planning and foresight, right? Because if you don't have a Twitter uh, account and you're just starting one on the day of a critical incident, that's not going to be helpful. Um, if you haven't reached out in your community and made some of those other connections, you know, as law enforcement um, communications experts, you should know the people at the hospitals, the airports, any place where these things can have the malls, you know, so that you are able to be in communication. You're not a stranger to those people when something like this happens. Those are all very helpful. I think that we both agree that the most important tools that we had at our disposal in the early hours were the relationships that we had already built in the community. As we close out today's podcast, if you could each share one thing that you wish every agency would know about communicating communication strategies following a mass violence incident, what would that be? And I'm not even going to limit you to one. If there's more than one, that's totally fine. But <laughs> if there can be more than that, but Sheriff Mina, you know, what, would, what would you want to convey to our listeners today? Well, a lot of things, but um, again, I, I think no matter how small your agency, you need to designate one person uh, for social media and get on Twitter. And if you watch all these incidents that happen across the nation and the world, 
that's how the media and the public get their information so quickly. Um, and you want to be the one that's that's putting that out. And I think, um, you know, making as the chief or the sheriff, making yourself available to the media, to the public, uh, especially numerous times throughout the first uh, uh, hours and days of the incident and, you know, answering as many questions as you can. You know, one of the press conferences I did, uh, I think I answered like 36 questions in six minutes or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to show the people, hey, I'm, we're being transparent. This is the information that I have. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you everything that I know at this moment. And if we don't know, we'll, we're going to find out. And this is what we're going to do moving forward to find out. So what's the one thing you can do more than one that you'd like to that you'd like to share? Um, I think it's really key to understand the urgency in situations like this, um, the need to be able to put out information as you can, as soon as you can, as much as you can, because what happens um, in the absence of that is that there's a void that needs to be filled and someone's going to fill it and you don't want someone else to fill that void with information that only you have access to the accurate information. And so it's really important that you um, get that out there for the community um, at large, not just for the media. I wanna thank you both so much for taking the time today to share your experiences and your insight. And thank you for being such valued members of our Mass Violence Advisory Initiative. Your willingness to help police leaders in a way that really only someone who's been in their shoes um, can do so is absolutely invaluable. So thank you for that. To our listeners, if you would like to learn more about the Mass Violence Advisory Initiative, please visit our webpage at www.viacp.org slash MVAI. This concludes our podcast today. Be well. This project was supported in whole or in part by cooperative agreement awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The opinions contained herein are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice.